Have you heard of the curse of the four-colour monster? I have not. It is said that over five years ago, two men, a father and son named Andrew and Michael Leyland, wandered across the Yorkshire Moors on a shortcut. They did this despite advice to the contrary. On their way, they were beset by tribulations, not least an attack by beings from the four-colour dimension. That's terrible! It gets worse. Torn and rendered of flesh as they were, they nevertheless survived, only to find they had a compulsion, a grave condition that meant they were condemned to discuss comic books with all who would listen. And was that many? Not really, but the condition was all-consuming. Some say that even today, their witless ramblings can be heard, if one chooses to listen. Is there no cure? They both believe a cure may be found, but until that day... They are doomed to wander the internet radio wilderness, planning their ad-libs and discussing arcane comic book lore. This is their gift. This is their curse. The curse of Hey Kids Comics. Mwah. Hey Kids Comics. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And we're back. Yeah. It's like we never go away. How can you miss us? Yeah. If we don't go we've, away. We've not been gone yet. No, that's that's very true. Uh, as we record this, Mr. Sean Engel is in hospital. Uh, and we just wish to wish him all the best and hope for a speedy recovery. If everything has gone great, then he'll be out by the time this comes out. Because as far as you, lovely listener, are concerned, it is now December the 3rd. Is it? That's when this is going up. Right. So they've had the impromptu lakes special. Yeah. Which was just us nattering in a car. Yeah. Which, you know, if Robert Llewellyn can make a podcast out of that, I didn't see why we couldn't. Fair enough. So and it's no difference from us nattering in our dining room. That's very true. Only you've got the hum of the motorway in the background. Yeah. Which I thought was really quite distracting. Right. But I thought, you know, I put a warning at the front of it and I figured if you want to listen to it, you can. And if you don't want it, that's fair enough. And then we had our November the 5th special, which right. was a treat, and the emails came in flooded. By which I mean to say we've not actually released no, that one yet, we, so we don't <laughs> So it's December. Right. We would have thought that sudden snowstorm would, uh, would lock us in for nine months, and we'd have to pass that <laughs> child off that we found in the field as our own. Yeah. Weird. Like, who, who'd have... Okay. <laughs> have you woke up yet? You can't make this stuff up. Uh, no, you, you can't make this stuff up. So we do hope Sean has made a speedy recovery, and uh, we wish him all the best. Um, you're back. Yes, I am. What have you done since last time? What have you been doing over November? What? Oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> lots, lots and lots of work, yes. Which you can't talk about yet. I, I can't, because I've not done it yet. Because it's hush-hush yeah. on the QT. Exactly. Top secret, and it hasn't happened yet. Her Majesty's Secret... Her Majesty's Secret Comic Book International Service. Yeah. Is that where you are? I can't say, I can't confirm, nor deny. (laughs) So should we do a couple of emails? We have got a couple of emails in, which is nice. Right. We said last time, we still like receiving the emails. Gabriel Jimenez emailed in about the just random talking about comics episodes that we did. Right. God, ages ago now. It, It was. So this was about part two. Hey guys, hey Gabriel. Batman Annual 8, Messiah of the Crimson Sun. Whilst I usually prefer my Batman more street level, not really sci-fi, your review left me intrigued. I actually looked for the cover online, pretty neat as you mentioned, and found some scans of the book itself. They showed the ending of it, I enjoyed the brief sampling. The art is good and I really enjoyed the last line of dialogue. No chum, that's everything. In reference to saving Gotham. 
We end with the typical tragedy of Batman losing Talia, but overall I think she let him off the hook pretty easily. I would have expected more of a reaction from her, and because Batman did murder Roz. You mentioned how you thought that Batman probably figured he would find a way to come back to life, but ashes blown out into space? Not very likely. I hope that somewhere else they would go deeper into Bat's rationalisation of that decision and Robin's thoughts on it. Still, this book is on my radar now. Pretty neat. Um, no, they didn't. I don't think Messiah of the Crimson Sun was ever referred to ever again, and I don't think it's ever been reprinted anywhere. Right. So if you want to read that one, I don't even think it's on uh, on Comicsology Digital. Mm. So if you want to read that one, you'll either have to tackle those naughty illegal torrent sites... Or hit your back issue bits, because I can't imagine it's an expensive comic book. Yeah. I mean, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Why the Last Man? This is a series that I have not read, but I've been meaning to for some time. I only know the general idea of the series, so I was very surprised when Michael got into the story's details. I think the particular selection and review highlight why the series has been so well regarded and Mike's maturity. Kudos. There you go, that one was for you. Thank you. It's nice to actually be able to cover these, and yeah. otherwise they would have just disappeared into the ether. Astro City number one. I've read parts of Astro City, nothing from the first volume, but do own some scattered issues, and I love the hell out of it. Busiek is a superb writer, very knowledgeable of superhero comics. It's that insight that allows him to subvert and play with the genre in a way that's not exploitative or insulting or cheap. Take note, Johns, Miller, Loeb. Not only is it a fresh take on the superhero genre, it's incredible how Boussiet creates a sense of wonder and history. One gets the sense that this is a real universe with its continuity and characters. It doesn't feel like a beginning of something, more like a continuation of something you've already been reading for a while. Masterful stuff. I haven't read this story yet, but it sounds awesome. Well, in contrast to the Batman issue that we just mentioned, Astro City number one is on Comixology and the DC app for free. Right. So go and download it and you can read it for free. Sandman number six, I have read this one and love the issues. This is amazing stuff. The first time I read it, it seemed so out of place. It really jarred, making me feel icky and uncomfortable. I have to say that I read Sandman after the series was done and was not expecting the horror comic storyline the series started out as. To me, the issue is gamer and it is Stephen Kingiest. Regarding the story itself, it really is a masterful issue. We grow to care for the characters so quickly, we have this sense of dread from the start with the mood the art establishes, and as things progressively grow worse and worse for the characters, we have a gut reaction to it all. Mike points out that the worst part of it is how detached Destiny is about the whole thing. He does all that because he can because he wants to see how far he can take things, not really for pleasure or satisfaction, a la the Joker. Madness for horror's sake. Great choice by Michael, and an excellent recap review as well. Anything to say about Sandman 6? No. Did you say it all? I, I did, yeah. You said it all in the started reading Sandman again, so I should be up to the again. You did, because the sixth issue... Yeah, Overture finally finished. Overture finally finished, So yeah. I read that all in one, and it was really good. Reading it as was well. it worth waiting two years for? No, no, it was not. But reading it as it came out, I forgot what happened. So reading it as one, it was it was quite enjoyable. That's fair enough, given it, the gap between issues. Yeah, and it leads quite well into the main series. So is it a prequel? Yeah. All oh, right. Okay, I didn't know. Well, that it's set right. around it because there's bits with um, Daniel. Right. Okay, that seems fair enough. I presume it's going to get a nice big Probably. glossy hardcover and then it's an the excuse for them. Yeah. And then I presume it's an excuse for them to re-release all of the masterworks with that yeah. as part of it. Absolute volume six. Absolute volume six, yeah. DC Comics presents 85. I want this comic so badly, 
says Gabriel. I'm officially placing it on my wish list. I'm a big Alan Moore fan, especially of his DC work. I have a good deal to say about him in general, as DC Right Inc. in particular. But I'll get to that when I write in about the last episode. I haven't read this story, but it sounds fantastic. Superman brought low always presents with a good opportunity to create a compelling storyline, especially when he realises how impotent he can be. I think the touch of him being saved by Swamp Thing, but having no idea of that fact, gives it a cherry on top. A subtle touch by a favourite writer. I'll admit I am surprised neither one of you has read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, which I think is an all-time classic. Well... That's something we do need to keep like get into, isn't it? Yeah. It's something we will read and we keep meaning to, we just never We have. just never got around to it, no. It's I think it's one of them. I mean at the moment it's available in hard covers, is there like five volumes? Something like that, yeah. I honestly think, because the way it is at the moment, volume one of the hardcovers probably had to get hold of. Yeah. So you'd end up with the paperback mm-hmm. and then you'd end up with a couple of hard covers to get it all. I think I honestly, when that comes out as an omnibus, and it will that's when I'll probably buy it. Right. When I can just get all of it in one yeah, one yeah. book, that's probably when I'll eventually get hold of it. Starman seems to have drifted off the radar of the reprints, doesn't it? Right. So I don't know if we'll ever Since get around to that. the omnibuses yeah. went out of print. Yeah, and they've never... They didn't finish them, did they? Didn't they release the hardcovers and they only did half the paperbacks? I think so. I think I read somewhere that they never finished it. Uh, Gabriel wraps up talking about Hellblazer. All of the Ennis Dillon run on Hellblazer is wonderful. By far the defining run for the character. Very good choice by Michael. Definitely fitting to the time and mood of the show. I've read the run, but don't know many of the issues. All are on my wish list. Well, I had a bit more to say than I'd originally intended. Hope you don't mind. We'll write some more in the coming days. Take care, dudes. Gabriel Jimenez. Oh, we don't mind, do we? No. I like how we focused on your choices. Yeah, yeah. Burley mentioned mine. I like it when that happens. <laughs> when your weird, off-the-wall, vertigo, horror sensibilities strike a chord with people. No, just when I get more attention than you. I'm not a big fan of that, <laughs> to be honest with you. I don't know why. Uh, Chris Franklin's emailed in, because it's not a show without a Chris Franklin email. On the road again. Hello, Leylands. What a treat. I had no idea this was coming. Well, I saw the Facebook post, but it was still a nice to see a Hey Kids episode waiting in my iTunes. Sounded like a great experience. The closest thing I can come up with to what we have here in the States is the Superman Celebration in Metropolis, Illinois, which I've been to a few times. The artists are spread out in different buildings around the town. I've met several Superman-related creators and actors there, including Alex Ross and Gerard Christopher. Totally jealous of your meeting with Darwin Cook, huge fan of the man's work, and from the interview on the New Frontier movie DVD, I can totally see him as a man from another time, as you describe. Thanks for recording your journey to and fro, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on Infinite Crisis, Chris Franklin. Oh, it's like we plan it, isn't it? Yeah. Our thoughts on Infinite Crisis, after these commercial messages. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. 
Wait, what? Crisis on Infinite Earths didn't need a sequel. So, of course, it got one. When Dandy Deal took over the editorial reins of DC in 2002, the company began a noticeable shift in its content and style. Initially, this was not as seismic as when Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada took over Marvel in 2001, but over the years, DiDio has emerged as a hugely controversial presence in comics, and for me, this all really started with Infinite Crisis, an out-and-out sequel to the 1985 miniseries that recreated the DC Comics universe. Infinite Crisis would bring back characters and concepts from that initial miniseries, and even some of the creative team. The message to readers was simple. DC wasn't messing around anymore. Infinite Crisis was going to lead into a new DCU, with the publication of one year later, and supposedly new setups and situations for the company. Say it with me, status quo change. Infinite Crisis would be, very definitely, a product of the 2000s. Comics had evolved since the 80s. Projects such as this were no longer like the original Crisis, which had tie-ins, but ones that the reader could largely ignore. Or that other major comics event of the 1980s, Marvel's Superhero Secret Wars, which was 12 self-contained issues. Infinite Crisis was being seeded two years before its publication, with the death of Donna Troy. And this series would comprise not only the seven-issue Infinite Crisis run itself, but the 80-page special that led into it, Countdown to Infinite Crisis, four interconnected miniseries of six issues each, four one-shot specials spun out of those miniseries, numerous other miniseries and one-shots, such as Secret Files, and the obligatory crossover into regular titles such as Superman and Wonder Woman. The near-complete Infinite Crisis omnibus, which we have here, contains 49 individual issues, some double-sized. And this doesn't take into account the knowledge the reader had to have from previous series, like Identity Crisis, or the many hints that Didio had been asking creators to seed into DC books for some time, or the books that span out of Infinite Crisis. At the time, for me, this was overkill, and the tipping point for my purchasing of DC. I felt, even as a long-time fan, the comics were becoming far too insular, too incestuous. It was also calculated, too designed to hit what few readers they had left in the wallet. It seemed to me that there wasn't a story in this that needed to be this big. Rather simply, it was screwing over the readership for whatever money they could. It felt like this series was going for shock value, by killing characters, and trying to follow the success Marvel had been having with its ultimate line, rather than being an organic outgrowth of the DCU itself. When a reader like myself who's been reading comics for nigh on 30 years was starting to feel this was all too confusing and expensive, what hope new readers? Hence, a new reader. What did you think, Michael? When it came out? Yeah, what did you think of Infinite Crisis as it was being released? I didn't read it as it was released. Did you not? I, the first time I read Infinite Crisis was, and I remember this well actually because I've just gotten my first haircut. I say <laughs> Well, we just let you grow your hair from being a baby. Yeah, so I got my hair cut, yeah. the, the big one, and I could lie down on the floor and read without having to pull my hair. Without having to wear a hairnet. Yeah, yeah, so that was the first time I read, and I read all three crises together. Well, Infinite Earths, Identity and Infinite? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and as a reader, not as jaundiced as I, what did you think? Uh, I quite liked it. That was your DC fairs? Well, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. You went through... Your DC fairs was the the late 2000s. Because I was reading John's Green Lantern as well. Yeah, which you love. I still love. Yeah, yeah. Still like that. Okay, well, those are your, your two opinions, which is the whole point of the show. But that was then. This is now. How does it hold up now? 
We will only be looking at the 80-page lead-in and the seven-issue miniseries itself in any depth, although there will be diversions, I would imagine, because I have read pretty much most of the the omnibus. Also, I am pretty stubborn when it comes to how much I'm willing to spend on these things, and at the time, I only bought Countdown to Infinite Crisis and the seven-issue miniseries. You have since got this big, fat omnibus. Was this a Christmas present? Uh, I bought it myself with Christmas money. I bought this in 52. Right. Because I was thinking of rereading them all again, and it just seemed like a better choice to get everything in one than... It is a nice omnibus. Oh, yeah. And uh, what they include is nice. I mean, as usual, the jar- there is some jarring artistic changes. Yeah. Well, as Michael Bailey pointed out as well, there's a very specific reading order for this that it's not collected in. Is it not? All the series is... The series is... The, the tie-ins and such to this, the build-up to it, yeah. are all kept together, aren't they? Yeah. Issues 1 to 6, issues 1 to 6. Yeah. Whereas when I did the show with Michael Baylor, he pointed out that they have a very specific reading order. Uh, yeah, well what happens in... Um, it's the OMAC project that is the first one, isn't it? And the OMAC project picks up directly after Countdown for Infinite Crisis, but then four issues into that... Yeah. Something happens in another title, which we'll go into when we get to the end of Countdown for Infinite Crisis. Yeah. And then the last two issues of the OMAC project take place after that event. But in this, yeah. the OMAC project is all collected together. So that does make for an intriguing reading experience. Yeah. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that as, as we go along. Countdown to Infinite Crisis wasn't cover dated, although a glance at the Indicia reveals it was released in the May of 2005. The May. Mm. Apparently there's only one of them. There's only the May. There's never anything else. The cover is by Jim Lee and Alex Ross and proudly boasts it is 80 pages for $1. On it, the Batman holds a body. We don't know if he's dead or unconscious, but his clothes are in tatters. The body is in shadow and for a long time speculation was that this was Nightwing. Had Dandy Dio, a long-time detractor of everybody's favourite former boy wonder, had his way, it would have been Nightwing who'd had a target on his chest throughout this series. It is not, however, Nightwing. There are two covers. Are there? What's yeah. the other cover? After the fact, before the fact. Oh, right. So I did not notice that. Michael's absolutely correct. On the cover to the issue that I've got here, the actual issue, um, and this was free on Comixology for ages. Right. So Countdown to Infinite Crisis was free on the DC app or Comixology as well. So if you've never read it and want to give it a go, go and check it out. Um, yeah, on the cover to mine, it's not immediately obvious who it is. It's no, blacked, blacked out, out, isn't it? Whereas on the cover that is reprinted in the omnibus, it's clearly Blue Beetle, which kind of ruins it for you if you've not read it before. That's true. <laughs> but it is set up from the beginning. And let's be honest, um, if you're paying this much money, you presume for this big you've fat omnibus, read it before. and you probably have some vested interest in the DC universe. Yeah. And the implication there as well, like I say, he may not be dead. Yeah, and but then you also have why, who by, duh, mm. duh. So it is, it is quite interesting that they did that. Right. Uh, as a cover, um, it's, it's not the best work of either men. Batman stands holding Blue Beetle. The DC Universe of Heroes stands looking on a gog. Uh, Wonder Woman looks like Victoria Beckham. <laughs> Superman looks like he's got that shiny blue spandexy yeah. type costume thing on that I'm not that big of a fan of. The other characters look pretty good. There's Hawkman, Green Lantern, Doctor Fate, The Martian Manhunter... It's, it's, I'm not, 
I don't think it's a great cover. I think it's an interesting collaboration. Yes. And you can very definitely tell it's both artists. Yeah. It's in- yeah, you're absolutely right. It's interesting from the standpoint of it looks like Jim Lee and Alex Ross had a child. Yeah. And that's what he would draw like. Mm. So on that respect, yeah, it's good. It's a more, hmm, what's going on, who is that, intriguing cover than it's a good cover. Yeah. It's, it's, it's there to grab you and not... Yeah. And so on that level, it works, then, yeah. doesn't it? All right, okay, fair enough. Uh, the creative team was all-star, included Jeff Johns, Judd Winnick and Greg Rucker as writers, Rags Morales, Ed Benes, Jesus Sayers, Ivan Rice, Phil Jimenez as pencilers, and Michael Burr, Jimmy Pamiardi, Mark Campos and Andy Lanning as inkers. Some of these synopsises do get a bit long, and I've got a bit of a sore throat today, so this may, like, may be fun. Hopefully the, the, the listener will not be able to tell on my editing. So we'll give it a go. And here we go. The story leaps around in time, starting near the end. As Ted Cord, the Blue Beetle, breaks into a fortified castle in the Swiss Alps, his mind tumbles backwards to the events that led him here. It started with Oracle. The former Batgirl informed Ted he was nearly bankrupt, and one of the receipts was for something or someone called OMAC. Ted ponders, what's OMAC? He has other problems in that his ATM card is being used right now, presumably not by him. Ted tracks the card to Booster Gold Adventurer from the future, who has fallen on hard times and he needs the money to go to Miami for a commercial. This could put him back on top. Ted mentions his money problems and Booster offers to come with him, whilst Ted has a meeting with Maxwell Lord, who can presumably help him. After all, who knows corporate takeovers better than a man who wrested control of the Justice League from Batman? Max isn't interested. He tells them both he's looking into it, but that they should forget about the tights and get on with their lives. Ted and Booster leave, but Ted won't let it go. He's off to see Bruce Wayne, as Wayne Tech is in some way involved. Booster, however, needs to leave. Ted is upset, but tells Booster to take care of himself. After all, I guess that's what he's best at. As Blue Beetle, he visits the Batman. Batman is a dick. Beetle leaves, feeling Batman is ignoring him. Perhaps Batman never took him seriously at all. Batman, however, is investigating the same thing Beetle is, albeit from a different angle. Beetle's investigations lead him to the last Cord Industries warehouse to be raided. It is empty. Gone are its contents, over 100 pounds of kryptonite. Superman isn't too impressed when Beetle tells him, but he leaves to pursue the stolen load, as Beetle is attacked by what looks like creepers. The Beetle takes a beating, but Booster Gold appears and saves his ass. Booster tells Beetle he needed to be with his friend. Aww. Elsewhere, the calculator communicates with a society of supervillains led by Lex Luthor, a society that features Black Adam, Talia Al Ghul, Deathstroke, Dr. Psycho, and an enraged Dr. Light, who wants vengeance for what the heroes did to him. Blue Beetle and Booster Gold have returned to Ted's home to carry on the investigation, but as they follow the money trail on the computer, Ted's house explodes, nearly killing Booster. With Booster hospitalised, Beetle heads to Fawcett City to speak to Billy Batson, after using the Beetle Scarab to help him. The Marvels aren't around, but he does locate the wizard Shazam, who expresses remorse that Ted has gotten involved. These are not the trials of man. With this cryptic message, Blue Beetle is sent back and nearly killed yet again when his flying bug explodes. He decides it's time to ask for help. At the JLA Watchtower, he speaks to Wonder Woman. Of all the JLA, she believes that there is merit to what he says. Something is going on. This is in marked contrast to John Jones, who acts like an ass to Blue Beetle, but he is suddenly distracted by a call from Adam Strange, who is embroiled in a full-on war between the planet Ron and neighbouring Thanagar. 
Stood in the smouldering ruins of his life, Blue Beetle pulls his mask off to reveal the lenses are scratched. Further examination reveals them to be made up of Skeets, Booster Gold's robot companion from the future. Skeets was designed to watch. If you wanted to monitor someone, what better equipment to use? Blue Beetle backtracks Skeet's signal back to the Swiss Alps, where we opened our tail. Beetle taps into the computer systems to see that whoever this is, they know everything. Superman's secret identity, location of the Batcave, everything. He's even listed Blue Beetle as deceased. A man in the darkness claps and Beetle turns around to see... Maxwell Lord! Bum bum bum! Lord has been hiding in plain sight, keeping the League ineffectual and monitoring the higher-powered heroes for years. He's the head of Checkmate, because the higher-powered messes need monitoring. Beetle reacts. The files disappear from the computer, then he runs. He can't escape from Omak, though, and is severely beaten for the attempt. He awakens trapped and bound. Lord tells him he wanted Beetle to find out. They need him, and men like him. Earth's destiny should be in the hands of humanity, not people pretending to be human. One last time, Max asks the Blue Beetle to join him. Ted Cord, the second Blue Beetle, says, Rot in hell, Max. Maxwell Lord shoots him through the head. With Ted dead, Lord orders the activation of OMAC. It's time to save the world from itself. The thing with um, OMAC is it always sounds like a Mac, which is that thing that women used to shave their legs. Okay. So whenever he says something like, what's OMAC? I'm always thinking, what's that cream that women used to shave their legs? <laughs> I think that's a Mac. Yeah. But it's, it's the same thing, isn't it? it, it it's funny if you ignore that, that mm. minor difference. It's funny if you ignore the fact that it's spelled completely differently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's to this comic book's credit that this many artists don't render this book a mess. Well, it helps that they split into individual chapters. That does help as well, but even even with that, that can sometimes still be disjointed and yeah, jarring. Yeah. This flows really well. Well, what I found quite interesting about it is it is five individual part ones that lead into all the... All the different series. Because that's that's essentially what they all are. Yeah. You have one chapter that focuses on Omak, you have another one that features the society, another one that features the Ranthanagawa, mm-hmm. and they all lead into it. Yeah, it is It is really cleverly written yeah. to set up the individual miniseries. Even in certain cases, like Rags Morales would go on to the Omak one. Yeah. I think he did the, the Wonder Woman or Superman issues. Yeah. Um... There's, there's Ivan Reese who did one of the chapters that then went into the Rand Final Go War. Well, Ed Benes did the Superman crossover, and he did the Superman yeah. issues. And and Phil Jimenez yeah. did the last chapter and then the main series. Yeah, so it is it is really well constructed. Um, unusually, though, the actual comic doesn't have any creator credits. Right. So it does have that thing where you're going through the whole book plain spot the artist which is fun well aren't they all credited at the beginning they no they are credited on the DC Nation text page right and that is the only place in this comic where they're credited right they're credited okay. in your omnibus yeah, yeah. on the page before this, this comic starts but in the actual issue itself they don't get credited apart from on the DC Nation page so right. that does have the effect that if you do read the comicsology version there's no creator credits right 
Which is because I was looking because I was going. That's Ed Benes. That's yeah. I was playing Spot the Artist because obviously I read it and then I got to the DC Nation page and went, "All oh, right, I didn't need to play Spot the Artist." Although how many did I get right? <laughs> Which I always enjoy enjoy playing. Um, but yeah, the artwork's pretty much consistently good throughout, despite being a, a different bunch of artists. The DC Nation text page is inadvertently hilarious in that Dan DiDio basically crows about selling an 80-page comic for a dollar that has a complete and exciting story, whilst on that same page acknowledging that this isn't any way complete, and in fact leads into six issue miniseries for four different series. Yeah. So on the same page, he's going, oh, where else you get value like this? 80-page, all-new story, one dollar. Oh, by the way, <laughs> to fully understand the events that transpire here, yeah. you need to go and buy, what, 24 extra comics? Well, even at that, if say if you're a new reader and you've never read the Bwahaha era, yes. you don't know what OMAC is, yes. you've not read Identity Crisis, yes. you're clueless. That's, that is one of my notes that I've got later on, but now you've brought it up, we can address it now. Um, in and of itself, this is this is very good. Mm. As the start to a major crossover, if you're not reading DC Comics, you've not got a damn clue what's going on here. Yeah, the thing with it, uh, DC that I've always liked about them is, at least until Flashpoint, you were rewarded for having a investment in them. Mm. The flip side of that, though, is if you're a new reader, you're left behind. Yeah, and ultimately, isn't that where New 52 came from? Yeah. That, yes, you were being rewarded for having investment in the DCU, mm. but ultimately, this level of continuity yeah. was starting to prove problematic for them. Now, I don't. you can argue whether New 52 was a good or a bad idea, but certainly, whilst this issue in and of itself is a gripping read, you are kind of left a little bit on the... Even I was a little bit on the back foot, because so much time has now passed yeah. since this era. This is now a bygone era comic. Mm. This DCU doesn't exist anymore. No, it doesn't. So even me reading this now, I was kind of going, like, so what was happening at this time? Yeah. And this does kind of play into my introduction a little bit, that even a reader of 30-odd years at that point was struggling to keep up with everything that was going on. And not just financially, Yeah, but from a, from a, an, a complex narrative point of view. And we'll get more into that as, as we go along, though, as we, we discuss the series um, and properly. Throughout this issue, I think you do get a good sense of who Blue Beetle is. Yeah. Because he's portrayed in this book as a low-level, high-tech hero. And he's really engaging and entertaining as a character. Yeah. And you get from this that Beetle and Booster Gold are friends. Mm. And have been for some significant time. So there's an argument to be made, though, that you don't have to be overly familiar with the Boahaha era to to get the character beats No, but in to, this. to get Maxwell Lord and Omak, I think, you need to have some knowledge of who Maxwell Lord is. Yes. I, I, well, that's what I was just coming to. So you get the Blue Beetle, you get the, the Booster Gold stuff from this. It's well written in that sense. But the Maxwell Lord payoff, you've only got one page in this comic yeah. to relate who Max Lord is. Mm. And without that whole backstory of the Braha era, that kind of falls flat at the end. The sense of betrayal that you, as a reader and that presumably Ted Cord as a character feels when he discovers Max is behind this, has more weight yeah. if you've read that Justice League era. So yeah, that, that kind of reveal does fall a little bit flat. But they do a good job of setting up Blue Beetle in the comic, and because you can't kill off somebody the audience doesn't give a damn about. Yeah. And 
even if you've only read this, you care about Ted Cord. Yeah. Which is quite a good achievement well, for Blue, one comic. Blue Beetle's one of those characters that ultimately, if he was killed off, the the mass amounts of readers won't really cut that much. Yeah, the, he had a very small but vocal fan base. Yeah. But to the rest of the world, Blue what? Yeah, but having him written the way he is in this as the main character, it's like, oh, they've killed off Blue Beetle, but there's a lot more character that they have killed off just in the story. Yeah. You do. They do a really good job with it. Mm. I'm going to come out and say all the writers do a great job in it. And there's some lovely characterisation throughout the book. I don't remember Blue Beetle having a crush on Barbara Gordon before. No. But, you know, it makes sense in the confines of this, and it gives her a connection to him. Mm. So that's okay. There was a little bit of Maxwell Lord's plot that didn't make sense to me. Because he does say at the end, I had the two people I thought would figure it all out would be you and Bruce Wayne, or Batman. Right. He doesn't actually call him Bruce Wayne. Mm. My money was actually on you. Right. And I was wondering throughout this, did he set that up then? Because if you're siphoning off Ted Cord's money, surely having a receipt for OMAC isn't too bright. Yeah. Unless you Max want. has done it deliberately yeah. because he, he he didn't want to kill Ted Cord. He wanted to bring him on board. It was the join me yeah. moment, wasn't it? And then Ted betrayed that trust and said, no, not a chance. And so Max shot him. Mm. So that, that I thought, was that a plot contrivance? Was it good detective work? Or was Max deliberately leaving that thread for Ted to pull on? Yeah. And if he is, that's an exceptionally subtle piece of writing. Mm. Which, again, I didn't expect from an issue that's just setting up a big money spinning crossover. Mm. Obviously, I don't know the answer to that. I, uh, it's never it's never spelled out in the comic. But benefit of the doubt. But, yeah, well, and you don't really want it spelled out in the comic. Yeah. You want to have that little bit of doubt in your mind as did, did was this set up by Max for Ted to find him? Yeah. Or was Ted incredibly clever with his deductive reasoning. But actually having a receipt to something called OMAC seems a bit of a massive clue Yeah, for, for, for Max not to have done it deliberately. So anyway, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Although, if he did want him to figure it out, why does he try so hard to put him off on the page with, or is that for Booster Gold's benefit? Could be. But is that just him not breaking cover? It's There is that. And there's also this idea that if Ted's really got his teeth into something, he's not going to let it go. Yeah. And this is basically just, like I say, it's for Booster Gold's benefit. For Max to say, hang up the tights, nobody cares anymore. Yeah. So, you know, it works both ways, doesn't it? Um, I mentioned in the synopsis that Batman is a massive tool in this, but Batman's pissed off with the League following the events of Identity Crisis, where it was revealed that the JLA mind-wiped Dr. Light and after Batman. he discovered... And Batman after he discovered some of those secrets. And so he started keeping a dossier on the League well, to bring them all down should he need to. This was a big reveal because this was him saying he knows what they did. Yeah. So this is when that changed. So until this point, did Batman not know? Does he not find out an Identity Crisis? I, hmm. I don't remember because no, I've not read Identity Crisis in ages. But this, again, this plays into what we're talking about, doesn't it? Yeah. In and of itself here, Batman's been an asshole. And the only hint you get, I'm paranoid because I know what they did, is his line of dialogue. But you as a reader of this individual comic, having not read Identity Crisis, don't know. Mm. And there's an argument to be made that Infinite Crisis 
as a series, never explains that. Yeah. Yeah. So, this go again, as much as we're praising this for managing to walk that tightrope... Well, a lot of it is about identity crisis and yeah. motivations, but it never answers any of the questions. Identity crisis is very much part one of this story. Well, if you're saying that like, Crisis on Infinite Earths is part one, which it is... Uh, you are, right. yeah. A Crisis on Infinite Earths is part one of Infinite Crisis. Yeah. Identity crisis very definitely plays into it. So maybe identity crisis is 1.5. Yeah, you can read all the crises together and get a lot of the story. Mm. For the most part, you need to read most things written by Jeff Johns, but you can just read all the crises and it, it works fine enough. Does it make sense? Yeah. All right, maybe I should have read Identity Crisis before this. Maybe at some future point we'll do Identity Crisis. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that can be a special at some point. Uh, Blue Beetle is portrayed as being very insecure and having low self-esteem throughout this entire story, mm. which I didn't really get from the Justice League bit, but he's in much better shape here. Yeah. than he was in the Justice League because they do actually mention that he's lost a bit of weight don't they mm. so uh, yeah. there's 100 pounds of kryptonite stolen which I didn't get I thought this era of I mean it may have all changed in issues that I never read but I thought the whole point of this era of Superman was there only was only one piece of kryptonite I don't know see you've got nothing on that so I'm, in sure, I'm sure there is some Michael Bailey uh, would probably be a good one to ask who knows of Stephen would probably know were this extra kryptonite has come from. Yeah. Given that that was the whole point of post-crisis Superman, there was only one chunk of kryptonite. Right. And now there's hundred pounds of the stuff. Yeah. So I didn't get where that had come from. I don't know why Ted Cord would be... Um, the owner of it. The owner of £100 of kryptonite, but whatever. Uh, are the Mad Men related to the Creeper? They look like it. They certainly do look like... They look like they're related to the Creeper in the same way that the Omacs are related to Jack Kirby's Omac. Yeah, i.e. Yeah, yeah. the similarities and the name is the same yeah. but in every other respect no well it was Final Crisis when they married the two was it? yeah right okay and we've done that we have go back and listen wish we'd done them in order now <laughs> as it stands we do it We do it very puzzle piece we don't do, we, we do. Which is, that's how we do stuff here uh, Booster Gold coming back to save Ted Cord is predictable but hugely satisfying yeah to see the costume as well because it is pretty cool yeah uh, there are currently rumours that Nathan Fillion and Alan Tudgett want to do these two right which would work but I yeah. think again although Nathan Fillion's porked up a bit so he would do as an out-of-shape Blue Beetle at the minute, wouldn't he? I see him more as a Booster Gold. Do you see Nathan more as Booster Gold and Tudjuk as Blue Beetle? Yeah. All right. So the thing with that is T- Admiral Tudjuk's in very good shape. Yeah. Nathan would need to lose a bit of weight. He, he would. Yeah. All right. Ca- all that castle money <laughs> going straight <laughs> into straight the fridge. <laughs> Uh, I do find it interesting in the the meeting with the Justice Society. Talia calls Black Adam out on his hovering. Yeah. Uh, floating, she basically. And I always see this as an unconscious way for the character to express that he's above people. Mm. Which is why I hate it when Superman does it. Yeah. I don't mind it when Black Adam does it, because Black Adam is a villain. And he, and he does think he's yeah. superior to people. Or only those that he's superior to. Yeah. Which is everybody. Uh, the lightning blast that destroys Booster's house and, and Booster's house, Beetle's house and nearly kills Booster, activates the Blue Beetle Scarab that takes Blue Beetle to Fawcett City. And I didn't really like this bit. Right. So far, Ted's worked all this out himself. 
and then suddenly you just introduce in this magical element. Well, I mean, yeah. it's leading into a series, isn't it? Yes, yeah, to set up the secret, no, not secret society, the Shadow Pact. Yeah, but up until this point, he's done deductive reason and intelligent. Some guesswork has been involved. Yeah, but it's been intelligent guesswork. This is the only bit that's stiff setting up exposition. Yes, and I see you disliked it for a different reason. I dislike it then. But you're right. Yeah, it is. It is very stiff compared to the rest of it. It is uh, one of those Blue Beetle shows up in the home of Shazam, mm. the the guy who gives Captain Marvel his powers. We get some boring "man was not meant to know" <laughs> dialogue, which I hate. I always hate that trope. And you know, it's it's just like Mandrake Man- the Magician showed up in the middle of a Sam Spade story. And said, Oi, Sam, should be looking over there, mate. And that, it, it didn't work. Or it didn't work for me. Yeah. May have worked for you, I don't know. Uh, I did like that Wonder Woman believed him. I thought that was a nice touch. Everyone else just ignores him, but Wonder Woman believes in what he's saying. Mm. So that was quite interesting. And although Michael has mentioned, and you're right, that most of the lead-up for the subsequent miniseries is organic yeah. and very well done in the narrative of this comic, the Ran Thanagan War stuff feels really crowbarred in. It just appears out of nowhere. You know what I think? So Blue Beetle's yeah. up at the Watchtower, and he's talking to John Jones, and then suddenly, oh, wait a minute, I've got an emergency subplot coming in off my transceiver. It completely happens at the same time. Yeah, ever. to set up Ran Thanagan War, because Blue Beetle's got nothing to do with that. No. He doesn't know what the hell's going on, and after it he goes, oh, this is giving me a headache, and he leaves. Yeah, yeah. That was crowbarred in, wasn't it? Yeah. Not quite as well done. As, as the other stuff it has I mean, to be said I mean you can't blame Adam Strange for having to send out an emergency SOS just at that time yeah it's lucky that wasn't it yeah. real stroke a lot but yeah I mean the art's nice yeah uh, the art's pretty um, I also didn't like that Skeet was destroyed and butchered off panel although had we seen that happen then this reveal wouldn't have made sense well, would it so yeah okay. plenty more Skeets in 52 is that does he bring he always brings him back in Infinite Crisis doesn't he he does there's a lot more Skeets in 52 yeah so, so I've not read 52 since it came out so. 52 is actually a really good Booster Gold story after this is it yeah well I may read that next seeing as I've got all the time on Thursday nights now where <laughs> I don't have to do that um Ted knows he's dead from the minute he sees the file with deceased written on it and after that, it's all just a foregone conclusion, sadly, for Mr. Cord. Yeah. The final battle, he does get his ass kicked, doesn't he? Mm. It has to be said. And then you get the final panel reveal where he gets shot through the head. He's shot on panel. There is no question here that he's dead. Yeah. Dead means dead. It does. Said Joe Quisada. Uh, I don't want to say this was the beginning of the darkening of the DCU, because I think in previous episodes, we've shown that DC started to darken post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, with, with the Flash sleeping with married women and Green Lantern being a drunk driver. But this was a huge turning point yeah. for DC at this time. It was when they decided to get serious about being dark. Yes, yes it was. Um, Didio has come in and since shown there's no sacred cows that he won't slay. Mm. in his quest to boost DC's market share. And making Crisis on Infinite Earth part one of a trilogy showed his commitment to nothing being off-limits. 
Yeah. Whether you agree with him or not, nothing's off limits in the DCU. There are no sacred cows. We can do whatever the hell we want if I think it will boost sales. And that's the bottom line, isn't it? And there's a part of me that's fine with that because DC is a business Mm. and DC has to make money. So that was fine. But Crisis on Infinite Earths, sorry, Countdown to Infinite Crisis here takes a couple of much-loved characters from an era that Dan DiDio seems to have no fondness for. Right. And I do wonder if that played into some people's reaction to it. DiDio, I don't want to say he hates the Boahata era of Justice League, yeah. But he's not a fan... He doesn't seem to be a fan of anything DC did in the 90s. Right. At all. Mm. And the did, there was a certain feeling from certain segments of fandom that I didn't think was incorrect that this was Dan Didio saying all that stuff was shite and I'm wiping it all away. Right. Rather than this being a creative endeavour that came about organically. But we already know from interviews with Jeff Johns that stories that do are derived organically have then been retroactively made to be huge, massive crossovers by yeah. Didio. Yeah. Because Snyder. And Snyder has said that as well, hasn't he? Snyder yeah. said that about his Batman run. So this one did at least feel organic in the sense that, yes, this is going to be a big, expansive crossover. Yeah. It didn't feel grafted. It was a calculated, yeah. organic story. But it was calculated from the beginning. Yeah. Which is different to Scott Snyder pitching a Batman story that Didio then says, let's make that a line-wide crossover. Mm. And Snyder going, yeah, well, you can do that if you want, but I'm just going to be over <laughs> here writing Batman. Yeah. And that, that kind of thing, though, whilst even if it is calculated and, and scripted, it, it does sometimes lead to some of the more interesting and enjoyable stories. It does, it can do. It yeah. can, there's sometimes nothing wrong with comics by committee. Mm. Especially when you've got as vibrant and as interested a creative team as they seem to be in this comic. Yeah. You know, I mean, the death of Ted Cord in this issue, he's not coming back from this, he's executed on panel. And for a lot of people, this was the beginning of the end of the relationship with DC. And even even in this story, it's it's, say, it's, it's it's stating that he's being killed to be replaced. Yeah, and it's basically setting up a, another Blue Beetle. Now, given that this is the guy who doesn't like Legacy, yeah. and just keeps bringing back, not the originals, because Barry Allen and Al John aren't the original, but his favourite version, to kill Blue Beetle off... Yeah. To make him a legacy character again. He's the second Blue Beetle, isn't he? Ted yes. Gold. So he's already a legacy character. With all of that, though, and I get people's complaints about it, and I understand people's complaints about it, as much as this has its roots in the DC of the past, it's also a story in its own right. Yeah. And judged as a piece of work in and of itself, just this single 80-page comic, it's exceptionally well-paced and gripping as hell and very well-written and drawn. Yeah. It is, on its own, it's a great comic book. Yeah. Now, like I say, I get people being very upset that Blue Beetle was shot in the head on panel. That's a death he's not coming back for. I get that there are a lot of people for whom this was the beginning of the end, although they may not have known it at the point that they read this. Mm. But what we're doing here is just judging this on its own. And reading it takes no time at all, despite it being 80 pages. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like you've been ripped off because you've only paid a dollar for it. Yeah. But in terms of the story content, there's a lot here, isn't there? Yeah, it's quite dense. 
in even, a good way. Even the bit that stuff just crowbarred in there. Yeah, well, you can you can ignore the Ram Thanagan War stuff. More or less. And even the Shazam stuff, although that plays into giving him the next piece of the puzzle, it's only three pages. Yeah. It doesn't affect the overall enjoyment of the actual comic. And when you've finished it, you do want to read it again mm. to make sure all the clues make sense. Or I did. And when you read it again, you see that Ted Code's death is signposted through the entire issue. From the first page. Yeah, from the first page. To not kill him at the end would have been a betrayal of the story. Yeah, it's like, you know, saying six issues set up the death of one particular character, but then at the last second they switch who's going to die. Oh, right. Like, what series would you be thinking of, though? Oh, I can't quite. I can't quite think of what series that (laughs) would be, he says, patting the Infinite Crisis omnibus meaningfully. Or the end of Rocky V. Right, okay. But that whole film is is leading up to Rocky's death, and at the last minute somebody said, you do know people aren't coming to watch Rocky die, right? <laughs> and they changed the ending. So suddenly the film's got no reason to exist. Is that the one that isn't a boxing film? Yeah, it's right. just a street brawl at the end. Yeah. And it's, you know. So, still, you know, taking on its own merits, this does lead to problems. Yeah. As we've mentioned, there's a lot going on with Dots Like and Batman. Doesn't make sense if you've not read Identity Crisis. Blue Beetle, Maxwell Lord, and Booster Gold mean little to nothing if you aren't aware of the past. And there are certain setups that are shocking to older readers that mean nothing to new readers. Like, why should I care about the Ranthanagar War? Yeah. I've never read Hawkman. I know very little about Adam Strange. What? Why does that matter to me? Hmm. And the way that that shoehorned into this. Doesn't yeah. make me curse. Well, I felt the same. Uh, the the shadow packs. Yeah. Didn't give a rat's ass. Around Thanago, didn't give a rat's ass. But reading. The, the miniseries is in the omnibus. Ran Thanagar was brilliant. Oh, it is. I love Ran Thanagar it's, it's like an exaggerated Star Wars. Yeah, that's exactly what it's Star Wars in comic form, isn't it? Yeah. And that's all it is. It's just a big war epic. Yeah. In space. So even though this failed. In that, to making me curse, yeah. when I actually read the comics, I was like, this is brilliant! Which is why I think the omnibus is, if, if you're interested enough, it's the best way to go. Yeah, is it still available? I think it might be. Is it still in print? Because it's got everything in there you need, and it's got... Even the, if it's not in the right order. And it kind of forces you to read stories you overlooked, but are really good. Yeah, like, I wouldn't have read Ralph Hanagawa. Mm. But it was in your omnibus, so I did, and it's really and some nice Ivan Ivan Rice artwork on that one. Yeah, so that so Ralph Thanagar was really good. Is it's it's a great show of what kind of artist he's like from to be doing the Ralph Thanagar War and the special and the main series. Mm. Well, Phil Jimenez wrote the main drew the main series. Yeah, but Ivan Reese was one of the filling artists. All oh, right, one of the supplementals. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Uh, so, what did you think of it? I thought I thought it was good. Yeah. It's, it sets everything up and it holds up as its own story. Yeah, it holds up better as its own story than the actual Infinite Crisis mini. Yeah. I think this is one of those examples where the, the setup is better than the conclusion. Lots of mini series happened in between this and Infinite Crisis number one. The OMAC Project 1 through 4 took place immediately in the aftermath of Countdown and has Sasha Bordeaux, who was Bruce Wayne's bodyguard, and discovered that he was Batman, revealed as Maxwell Lord's first officer. This led into Sacrifice, which ran through the Superman books and an issue of Wonder Woman. This had Lord manipulate Superman, and apparently the only way Wonder Woman could think to stop him was to snap his neck. Yeah. Bit controversial, that. This leads into OMAC Project 5 through 6. I have a few problems with Max's death. 
right. not taking place in the OMAC project, which was his own mini-series. Yeah. But not only that, it just happens in a random issue of Wonder Woman. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from that, reading it all together, I did quite like his death. It felt organic, even if you had problems with it. Yeah, and, and it does play into the story. There's yeah. a reason Wonder Woman does that. Mm that we will find out as we go into Infinite Crisis, which is one of the things that I think this did really well overall. It's brutal and it's violent and it's bloody, but that's the point of this story. Yeah, but it's it's then being put under the shadow of people losing that point, including yeah. Johns, the writer. Yes, I, I totally agree. We've not got to the end yet, but I do agree that DC's takeaway from Infinite Crisis seemed to be people love blood and gore yeah let's do more of that <laughs> as opposed to this series where there was actually a point to the violence and a reason behind it mm. but we'll get into that as we go along uh, Sasha then becomes an OMAC yeah after she's killed which was she uh, becomes um it was lead OMAC didn't she yeah she's like a sentient OMAC yeah so that was quite good Villains United 1 through 6 deals with the supervillains that refuse Lex Luthor's offer of being a member of the Secret Society. It reads like an updated Suicide Squad and is so over the top in its violence I had to double check Gail Simone wrote this. Uh, honestly, I felt this was a bit too long and pointless in places, although Simone does a great job with Catman and Deadshot. Yeah. And there are a few subtle hints dropped about Lex. What did you think of Secret Society or Suicide Squad or whatever it was called? I, I quite enjoyed Secret it. Secret Six. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, for, the, for the Titans, I'm running off memory here. Yeah, yeah, I've read them all much more recently than you. I, I did like it. I felt Six Issues was too much of it. Yeah. Although I did like the reveal that Deadshot had actually brought Catman in. Right. And Deadshot thought that Deathstroke had killed his animals where it was Deadshot. Mm. No. Yeah. Catman had thought that Deathstroke had Death done it. But it was yeah, Deadshot. Dead so I'm mixing up my, my characters. The whole I killed your parents. So yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, Infinite Crisis number one, the countdown is over, was covered in December 2005. Our cover is the George Perez version. It's as detailed as you would expect. Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman look as miserable as sin, not facing each other, their heads bowed to the side of the allies, underneath the adversaries, above Thanagago boom. It's Perez, so it's magnificent. It is. Uh, very, There's very detailed. a lot going on. There it? is a lot going on in those. So you, on the flip side, you've got Superman, and then behind him a Superboy and Supergirl, and then Batman, Nightwing, and Robin, and Wonder Woman, Donna Troy, and Wonder Girl, and then Deathstroke, and the Secret Society, Bizarro, all inside, all Batman's, inside cape. Batman's cape, and the Spectre, and Brown Thanagar's happening at the top. In contrast, Jim Lee's cover is Jim Lee's cover. I think the Jim Lee cover is, is really good in that it works well, it complements Perez's cover, but it's it's Jim Lee. It's, it's a bit stiff, is what we're saying. Yeah, it's all right. It's, it's stiff, but as a, an event cover, it works just as well as the Perez one does. Yeah, Wonder Woman takes centre stage, brandish and a sword, Superman and Batman are to her right and left, both glaring at each other, fish clenched, yeah. like it's the 90s. And in the background, again, the Spectre, Dr. Light, the Panther. That's Cheetah, isn't Cheetah, it? Cheetah, yeah. And some more stuff about Ram Thanagar. And all the Omax. It's, you know, it's... I, I, I am of the vintage that prefers Perez. I prefer the Perez ones, but I think the, the Lee ones work just as well. Okay, fair enough. 
Jeff Jones, sorry, Phil Jimenez and Andy Lanning wrote, penciled and inked issue one and throughout the creative team pretty much remains the same with aid and assistance from George Perez, Jerry Ardway, Art Tibbet, Joe Bennett and Ivan Rice. Issue one has no title. Right. The title is just Infinite Crisis, whereas all the others have, their have individual titles. In the destroyed JLA Watchtower, wait, what? Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman have a tiff following Wonder Woman's execution of Max Lord. I say again, wait, what? When did that happen? If you're only reading yeah. these two series. Despite this being the first issue of a series and a supposed continuation of the countdown issue we just read... Max Lord, the big bad of the last issue, is already dead. The people of the DCU now seem to have confused themselves with the population of the Marvel Universe and now fear and distrust their heroes. Elsewhere, the skies turn red as the Teen Titans fight. Omax appear in the sky over most major cities. Connor Kent, who at this point was Superboy, watches on TV but does bugger all about it. An omniscient narrator wonders when somebody will do something about it all. It won't be Superboy. This omniscient narrator will be revealed to be Cal L. Just an L, no E. The Superman of another Earth. And he watches the unfolding drama with an elderly Lois Lane, his wife, Superboy Prime and Alexander Luthor. They are watching as Earth burns and feel that it is time to intervene before there's no Earth left to worry about. As the darkness grows, the Titans split up to tackle different problems. Donna Troy and Starfire on something called New Cronus, whilst Nightwing remains in Blood Harbor. Yeah, the Omax kill old Bat villain, the Rat Catcher, but abstain from killing Nightwing as a gathering of Omax appear in the sky. Elsewhere, the Ranthanagar War rages on, with even the Guardians unaware of what is occurring, only that the nature of the cosmos has changed. In Gotham, the Riddler presides over a riot as Captain Marvel is hurled to the floor, beaten and bloodied. The Spectre appears in the sky as Superman of another Earth watches with growing fury. Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters fur no better, especially against the Society of Supervillains, which have a few new members since Countdown, including Bizarro, Reverse Flash and Cheetah. This society decimate the Freedom Fighters, slaughtering Phantom Lady and the Human Bomb, and nearly killing Damage, who only survives because Luther has need of him. Uncle Sam is left face down in the dirt, also presumed dead. With only Dr. Polaris killed on the bad guy's team, we'll chart this up as a win for the society. In the JLA Watchtower, Mongol drops by for a chat, if by chat we mean a bit of the Donnybrook. After nearly ripping Batman's head off and kicking Wonder Woman into touch, a pissed-off Superman kicks Mongol's yellow ass, but prevents Wonder Woman from killing him. In the ensuing argument, Mongol beats feet. The clashing ideologies between the heroic triumvirate leads to hurtful words that cannot be taken back. Batman and Wonder Woman drop off, leaving Superman in the shattered ruins of the Watchtower. Elsewhere, fed up with watching heroes with feet of clay, the four survivors of the crisis break through in what looks like a job for Superman. Dun, 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 dun. That's what that last page was, wasn't it? It was, yes. Very much that. Uh, numerous changes were made in between the individual issues that I have and the omnibus that Michael has. The blog, Every Day is Like Wednesday, was the best written of the lot in terms of detailing every little alteration, and I encourage you to go and check that out if you've only ever read one version of this. We're not going to point them all out. As I say, that blog does a better job of it than we could, but we will highlight the important ones. Yeah. 
that are worth mentioning. We're also not going to talk about all the various continuity and bits. There are plenty of annotations on the internet for that, if that's what you want to look for. We'd be here all day. Yeah, but we'd be here all day. And I agree with Garth Ennis. These things seem to exist simply to point out how clever the writer is. So it's nice that it's all there, and there's a couple of them that we, we both probably went, oh, that's pretty. But yeah. that, the story shouldn't be made up of little cute continuity references. The story should hold up on its own. That's true, but I like the little cute continuity references. Well, as a fan, you'll get them. Yeah. But they shouldn't be the point of the, the story. Best, to me, the best thing about events like this are what is the for you to... For you to... What little Easter eggs yeah, are there. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, look, it's, it's the Seven Soldiers. Yeah. Even though Seven Soldiers is based after Infinite Crisis, but they came out around the same time. This well, season. let's not let's not <laughs> picnics. Although we probably will end up doing that as we go along. Uh, some interesting visuals in the opening: Superman stands in a shaft of light, Wonder Woman in a half light, representing the darkness she's starting to step step into, and Batman is all in shadow. Yeah, which I thought was a very nice way of showing where they all were as this story opens. Mm. Superman's not quite took that step into darkness yet. Batman lives in darkness, yeah. and Wonder Woman's half and half. That was quite interesting, and a very very good visual representation of the mindsets mm. as we open the story. It's quite um, the Watchtower bit, and Mongol being in here. Uh, it, it follows straight on to whatever came before this yeah in the omnibus it leads directly into it uh but the big reveal of who was in the watchtower who blew it up when the martian manhunter was in there Hmm. you only find out later but here it seems like it was mongol yes and it's it is like if you're just reading this you're like suddenly what the yeah it's it's quite jarring it is it's very jarring i'll be honest with you uh superboy here is connor kent revealed to be a clone of lex and superman yeah which was a pet theory of Jeff Johns from his fan days. There is actually a letter Mm. in a comic from well before he became a professional writer where he actually writes, wouldn't it be cool if Lex was the other donor of the clone for Superboy? And the, the, the editor, I think, says, no, 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 no. But then, obviously, he becomes a part of DC Comics and he can do what he wants, can't he? Right. I know Jeff Lemire wrote that series for a while. Superboy. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I read it after the initial Tom Grummet, uh, Carl Kiesel stuff. Right. So I would not know. Uh, there's an incorrect word balloon on this page as we go forward. Here it says, were the survivors of the Crisis and Infinite Earth are talking? There is a word balloon about there being no Earth left to worry about, and it's pointing at Superman. Right. But Superman is the omniscient narrator. Yeah. So why would Superman say he's not right, he can't be, about himself? Mm. I presume that should be a Lex Alexander Luther line. Is the narration Superman? Because at some points I thought it was Superboy. There are some places in it that it's Superboy later on. Right. This issue is definitely Superman. Right. Because on the last page, yeah, it, yeah. the omniscient narration Turns into... leads into him speaking. Yeah. So he's narrating this issue. So why would he talk about himself in the third person? Yeah. And they haven't fixed that in the omnibus. Right, okay. So a genuine mistake... Wasn't fixed. Wasn't fixed. So, all right, fair enough, DC. If you want to go the George Lucas route, then that's fine with me. Uh, the Teen Titans stuff, Donna Troy being dead, then alive again, is not elaborated upon at all. 
Was which, she dead before this? Yes. Right. Which did leave me confused because I don't read Teen Titans anymore. I didn't read the Donna Troy miniseries where she died. Right. Nor did I read the Donna Troy miniseries where she was resurrected. And this plays again into my introduction where I was talking about even long-time fans like me were going, what the hell? Mm. I mean, it doesn't ruin the story. Although I'll be honest, Donna Troy's new Cronus stuff is boring for the first four issues of this. Right. They go to New Cronus, they hang about for four issues. Yeah. Nothing happens. So that stuff is is really quite dull. Uh, nice shot of the Omax filling the red sky. Couple of two-page shots there of the Polaris galaxy, which is also quite nice as we go to the Green Lanterns. Uh, in Gotham City, Nightwing survives his first death. Didio started this series out with a hit list. Yeah. Uh, one of which was Superman's marriage. Right. But I don't know how you kill a marriage. But, okay. Which he's published on the internet in, in later years. Nightwing is a character that, for some unfathomable reason, he has an intense dislike of, was scheduled to die until saner heads prevailed. Mm. And I think that Didio went into this series with a hit list rather than a decent plot. Yeah. Speaks volumes about where this story was heading subsequently. Mm. And I frequently wondered while reading it, how how did this end up being as good as it did? Was that purely down to the creative people making it work? Or was it purely down to reading this in today's comic climate? Yeah, possibly. But I honestly think... I do think the creative deserve the credit for it. I yeah. think they all pulled together and they made this idea work much better than it should have done. This was pretty much John's A-game. Yeah, but he's also, so, yeah. he's also got Greg Rucker... And he's got yeah. a stellar team of artists backing him mm. in certain in in the other like the the lead up miniseries like we've already discussed they should not have been as good as they were no. the Ormat project should not have been as good as it was Gail Simone's Secret Seven should not have been as good as it was yeah. Secret Six because they're all stories that are built upon a flawed foundation yes the flawed foundation being and again we'll talk about this later John's changes Crisis on Infinite Earth to make this story work. Yeah. Or he changes character motivations to make his story work. Mm. And I hate that. And yet, within the confines of this story, yeah. it kind of works. So I, I do think the creative teams on this did really pull together and go, all right, we've got to do this. How can we make it as good as we can? Mm. And they deserve a lot of the credit for it being as, as impressive as it is. Uh, the OMAX that fill the sky will be revealed to be perverted technology from the ever-paranoid Batman who's monitoring the JLA after the events of Identity Crisis. This isn't touched upon in this issue. It's come from nowhere, if you've not been reading the miniseries. Yeah. But it is in OMAP Project, and it is mentioned subsequently later on. Mm. So it is all there for you to follow it once you've read the whole thing. The Guardians of the Galaxy are unaware of who is shifting planets around and for what purpose, and thus a major plot point cometh. Yeah. So again, that will be answered later. Now that's good foreshadowing. Mm. That's mentioned here... And paid off in this series. Yeah. That's not something that's thrown away from another um, another issue. Captain Marvel is hurled to the floor by a vengeful spectre. The image of the spectre looming over Gotham with the bat signal on his chest is actually really cool. Mm. Very Jim Aparo. Yeah. I thought that was. And so, so. setting up Jim Corrigan. And setting up Jim Corrigan, um, which I hated. Did you? Yeah. I hated that Jim Corrigan... Uh, not Jim Corrigan. I hated that... What's his name? The two the two agents from Gotham Central. Oh, right, right, right. Um, Montoya and... God, oh God, I'm completely blanking on his name. It is. It isn't Corrigan. What's his name? Chris something or other. 
don't it'll come back to us later on. Anyway, I love that those two cops in Gotham Central were just cops in Gotham. Yeah. And this story makes them super types. Right, Which right. ruins them. Yeah. In my opinion. I don't mind Montoya as much because the questions are ground level, behind the scenes yeah. character. But making Chris Stingio, his name will come back to us. You're Spectre. thinking, I can see you thinking. Making him the Spectre, just, no, I didn't like that at all, to be honest with you. I think Greg Rucker did it though, didn't he? Yeah. And he was the main writer on Gotham Central with Brubaker, so... Mm. Alright, can't really argue with the creator. The Justice Society, who are really quite badass in this, kick the freedom fighters' ass. And it's brutal. It is. And it's it's nice seeing a knockdown drag out fight with villains of this stature being real threats. Yeah. Even if it is, as you say, it's ridiculously violent. And it does very much read like a teenager's just learned how to write gore. Yeah. But it there's some substance to it. Yeah, because again, there is a reason behind why this is happening. Yeah. Later on. Oh, we may as well spoil it. Dr. Psycho's doing this, isn't he? Well, in the collected editions where they make the changes to it, I think it's a lot more powerful than it was in the, the main series. Mm. Was it Dr. Psycho? So, yeah, Psycho Pirate. Yeah, the Psycho Pirate. I'm because mixing up the what you get is the scene with Wonder Woman, Superman and Batman just talking to each other, arguing, and then on that they've superimposed the Freedom Fighters being murdered. It was It's quite a strong scene. Yeah, and because he's manipulating them yeah. at the behest of, spoilers, Alexander Luthor. But showing the... the heroes arguing amongst themselves is having a larger impact for all the other characters. Yeah. It it gets the message across. It gets the seven-issue message across in two pages. Yes, and like we said, there is a reason for it. There is a reason for this level of violence in this story. Yeah. And it's Alexander Luther manipulating events so that he can convince Superman that what he's saying is true. Yeah. So, I mean, the lessons that we're taking from this, like we say, seem to be kids love violence. Mm. But in this story... There is a reason given for it all, which is fine. I mean, there is no more apparent... It's no more apparent than big old dumb Mian Bizarro beating a man to death with his burr hands. Yeah. Which one could rationalise as taking the wrong lessons from Alan Moore. Because that's very whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah. Bizarro going batshit. And speaking of Alan Moore, there's a panel where... Wonder Woman and Batman are stood before Mongol that that's a direct lift from For the Man Who Has Everything. Right. Which obviously I only spotted because that was the last thing we covered. Right. And I was looking at that going, that's very familiar. Well, John's wrote a two-issue Green Lantern story that was For the Man Who Has Everything. Right, okay. So to that, I presume that's a deliberate homage then. Uh, And I'm pretty sure, as we've mentioned that the intent at the end of Crisis on Infinite Earth was these just wandered into a limbo state mm. and there were no actual survivors. Yeah. And now I'd have to go back and reread Crisis to get that, to, to have a look at that, and I didn't. Did they not, was it not one of those things where they just stowed them away so that they could be used later? My, my reading of Crisis is that this was all gone. The end of Crisis was supposed to be that these characters no longer existed. Right. And they walked off into limbo, kind of. Now, essentially, Johns has read it in that they were still alive on panel at the end of Crisis, 
So he chose to take the reading that, well, they're still around somewhere. Yeah. And you can argue he's not wrong, but he's twisting the intent of the story to, to make his story have a foundation. Well, the way I read it was it might have been biased towards what I've read after that. But the way I read it was just they no longer serve a purpose, so store them away until someone else can use them. Mm, all right, you may be right. See, that, that this is in the how you interpret a story. Yeah. See, I grew up with the post-crisis where the, 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 what they were saying was clearly all of that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. This is the new DCU. When clearly elements of it must have existed for yeah. the new DCU to happen. But, alright, fine. Um, the trade changes dialogue in the scene where Wonder Woman is about to possibly kill Mongol, making it less ambiguous Yeah, that her plan was to pin him down and not kill him. Hmm. They spell that out for you in the omnibus, whereas here you've got the very real implication that she's going to kill him because yeah. of what she's just done to Max Lord. And then when she turns around and says, I wasn't going to kill him. Mm. I was just going to pin him down. You don't know who I am anymore. And Superman actually says, I don't know who you are anymore. Sorry. Yeah. But they change all that in that to make it less ambiguous what she's doing. Mm. Which I prefer the ambiguity of it. Right. To be honest with you. Because it makes you then question. Yeah, the it makes you question, was she going to kill him? Because she's just snapped Max Lord's head off. Yeah. And then when she says, no, I wasn't going to do that, that's fine. But, you know. Yeah, it's these two pages. Uh, there we go. So they have. Yeah, that's a change I didn't notice. Which I think this makes for a stronger reading. Yeah, over the two page where Superman and Wonder Woman basically have the discussion about what their plans are and there's no other choice. There's always a choice for people like us, all of that. In the omnibus, they have superimposed the Justice Society beating the crap out of Uncle, Uncle Sam. Sam. Yeah. And it does make it a more powerful scene. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that one. I'd completely slipped by that one. Brilliant. Well done. Yeah. Well spotted, that man. Um, as we've done in the past with stories like this, we're going we're gonna to try and look at both sides of the argument. Um, on the one hand, this is a failure as a first issue. Uh, yeah. Um, it squanders all of the goodwill generated by Countdown, which whatever you, you take away from it was, worked as a teaser for upcoming events and was a story mm. in its own right. This fails on both counts. Yeah. F- did you want to go on? I was going to say, a first issue should contain everything the reader needs to understand the story and enjoy it, and this picks up with a completely different place well, that Countdown ended. Yeah, before I got the omnibus, I'd only read Countdown and the main seven issues. Yeah. So for the longest time, it was, I don't know what's going on, Yeah. but I will just assume that I don't know what's going on because I have not read it in other titles. I never blamed it on this story. I kind of blamed it on me not reading everything else. But isn't the point of a first issue that it should contain everything you need to read and enjoy the story? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. But with DC, it's gotten to the point where you... At this point, anyway. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, and even now, with DC, you just kind of accept that if you don't understand what's going on in an, in an event, it's because you've not read every other title. Because you're not willing to spend all your money on DC Comics. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, see, Marvel does suffer from that as well. I mean, at least Secret Wars is working as its own self-contained miniseries, but by God, it's dull. Mm. So, yeah, so on, on in that regard, this fails. There's no attempt even made to bring readers up to speed no. on when Maxwell Lord died. It starts at a sprint and just keeps going, which is a point in its favour. Mm. be brutally honest with you if you haven't read the OMAC project all that random issue of Wonder Woman though you are quite lost yeah well, the thing with Infinite Crisis is it's never dull I was never bored by it there were just bits that I didn't understand yeah well th- that's exactly true it, is, it isn't boring by any stretch of the so that puts it one notch ahead of Secret Wars yeah. the new one not the old one before we, we get into that the thing with this though I did look up a reading order on the internet because that's normally what you're for yeah. But you weren't here when I was doing the notes for this. And um, nobody seems to be able to decide what the correct reading order for this is. Right. <laughs> Which I thought was hysterical. Yeah. Because there's so many comics that are happening at the same time. The way I usually read it is, I just stick to the Jeff Johns reading order. Right, as just he published his own. Read his Green Lantern up to Infinite Crisis and then read the Omnibus. Right, see I just read it in the Omnibus and it made sense. On the other hand... If you were immersed in the DCU of the time, this is rollicking good stuff. It is. Story threads from other books are paying off. There's a lot going on for the reader that is fully conversant with what's going on. And the art's really, really good. The violence level borders on gratuitous, but it's nice to see the three cornerstones of the DCU have a falling out, as one sometimes has to break the toys in order to rebuild them. Superman's a tad ineffectual in this issue. Batman is worse than useless against an opponent like Mongol. Batman's dialogue is brutal in this issue, though. Yeah, oh, he takes no prisoners, the does he? The last time he inspired anyone was when, was you, when you died. died yeah. Which kind of splits the fan base into whether you agree with him or not. Um, I don't know that I necessarily disagree with him. I don't disagree with him. But I do think that's in DC's handling of Superman since... 2000, 2002-ish. Is that what it's like? Is that Jeff Johns saying that the most part of him after the death was mostly forgetful? There is a rather nasty subtext to Infinite Crisis from Jeff Johns that basically is saying all them 90s comics were crap Mm. and all those whiny fans bitching on the internet about the post-crisis stuff, you need to get a life as well. And we'll get into that more as we get to it. The way I see it more is it's treading the fine line between what makes the readers happy and what makes a good story. Yeah, but sometimes you do have to shake up your reader. The last... Batman saying the last time you inspired anyone was when you were dead was... Could be read as John saying the last time Superman as a title was interesting to the audience was when he was dead. Was in any way relevant. Yeah, which, again... You know, if you enjoyed it, fine, but ultimately, was that a memorable era? Was it a good era? The general consensus is the post-late 90s stuff where he's ice skating Superman wasn't a good era. Yeah. As much as I personally like that story, <laughs> yeah, and I do, but for me, he's not incorrect. I mean, I'm on record as saying I don't think DC have done anything of interest with Superman since around 2000, 2001. With odd exceptions, yeah. like for all seasons and, and the occasional all-star Superman and, and stuff yeah. like that. For the most part, I don't think they've known what to do with him. Mm. And if this is John's commenting on the fact that DC haven't known what to do with him, then I agree with him. Yeah, if this is even say, John's knew what to yeah, do. Exactly, with him. even John's is run fizzled out, didn't it? Yeah. But even 
if this is saying all them comics from the 90s that you read then are crap, I don't agree with it because some of them are actually quite a lot of fun. I didn't get that. I just. I get that out of his Superboy stuff later. Yeah, fair. Yeah. When we get there. I can't, I can't argue with Superboy. No. When did they turn Wonder Woman into Thor? Is that not taking influence from uh, New New Kingdom Come? Is it? Because I know Perez made her a warrior, but he also made her an ambassador and a princess and all yeah. that stuff. So, but here she, she is Thor, isn't she? With that big mythology. Because yeah. I know John's worked with Alex Ross doing the prequel to Kingdom Come. Right. Which nobody likes. Do they not? Isn't that just called The Kingdom? Yeah. yeah. Apparently that's not very good. I've never read it, so I don't know. Um, you know, seeing Superman cut loose on Mongol was satisfying. Yeah. It's always nice to see Superman cut loose. And it's not a rousing success, enjoyable though this first issue is, but it's not a failure. No. Uh, and at least no one feels out of character like in Civil War yet. Right. There will be a couple of, of notes later on. You like the first issue? Yeah. Uh, George Perez's cover for issue two has Power Girl looking at the shards of different realities across the DC universe. It's absolutely stunning. There's just lovely images in there that you can pick out. Superman's rocket being launched from the three different eras, Flash of Two Worlds, uh, Supergirl dying on the crisis, Doomsday, um, Ted Cord being shot in the head, Superman and Superboy in the end of crisis, Parallax... Hal no. Jordan was Parallax. Yeah, who knew? Who knew? Dark Side, the first meeting of the Justice League and the Justice Society. Uh, Nightfall is the the Gentleman Ghost. Why the hell the Gentleman <laughs> Ghost is there? I have got no idea whatsoever. Um, I think it's glorious. Yeah, the the Jim Lee one is Power Girl Power with Girl. a bust out. Quite interesting about this one is yeah. in the issue one. The no cover doesn't have the background in it yeah. to keep the reveal at the end of the first issue a secret. You think that's what it is? Yeah. Alright, okay, fair enough. I was just going to say Jim Lee didn't finish the art on time. <laughs> it could be that. But, but your way works as well. Yeah, because so. if you think about the countdown one, he did two covers just to keep the secret. Yeah, alright, fair enough. Jim Lee's, I mean, yeah, it's Power Girl's very busty. It's a nice cover and he does a healthy Power Girl. He does a very healthy Power Girl. She looks a little bit like J. Scott Campbell drew a little bit. Yeah. And um, Superboy Prime, Superman Lois Lane and, and Alex Luthor stand in the background. Uh, part two is called The Survivors. Animal Man joins other members of the Titans and heroes like Supergirl and Red Tornado in New Cronus as Airwave seems to be going crazy thanks to the signals he's picking up from other worlds. Back on Earth, Power Girl is doing her best against the combined might of Giganta, Mr. Atom, Clayface and Gerda. Power Girl faces impossible odds but refuses to give up, something that pleases the elder Superman from the other Earth no end. He swoops in and helps her out, telling her that she may be the most important person on the planet. Back in Metropolis, Lois is told by Martha Kent that Connor is still refusing to get involved. Clark Kent, meantime, is not following that path and flies away as Superman. The Justice Society have failed to locate the Marvel family, but Luther tells them he has a contingency plan. Besides, they have Black Adam. That should be enough to operate the mind-wipe machine. Rather confusingly, for readers only of this comic, there is another Lex Luthor in a green and purple battlesuit in the Arctic, and he seems rather unsure of who he is. He looks up in the sky to see two flying figures streak by, Power Girl and Superman. They arrive at what was the location of the Elder Superman's Fortress of Solitude, and after being introduced, Superman 2 tells Power Girl all about the crisis on Infinite Earth and the conclusion of said tale, when these four sacrifice their world to birth a new DCU. Sadly, it's all gone Pete Tong, as the world has 
just gotten darker and darker, with heroes that kill or become more corrupt, and having taken all he can stand, he can't stands no more. Using every iota of his strength, Superman 2 has managed to break his friends and himself through to put right all that once went wrong. Alex Luthor offers some gobbledygook explanation for how Power Girl can be of Earth 2 that contradicts Crisis, but it doesn't matter, because when Power Girl hugs the dying Lois Lane, she remembers everything. On the moon, Booster Gold has a new skeet and is seeking Blue Beetle Scarab. On Earth, the Joker's pissed off he's been overlooked for membership in the Justice Society, kills the Royal Flush Gang in a fit of pique. Perhaps the Joker doesn't know that the King of the Royal Flush Gang is supposed to be immortal. Batman is also doing some investigating, trying to hack back into the OMAC computers. The OMACs are hunting the metahumans that are a threat to humanity, metahumans like Wonder Woman. To that end, the OMACs have launched a devastating attack on Paradise Island. Superman 2 tells Power Girl that all this darkness is what's been put an end to. They saved the wrong Earth. It's time to fix that error. Despite all the changes in the DCU over the years, it's nice to see on page one that Buddy Baker's family haven't changed at all. Yeah, yeah. They haven't even aged yeah. since Grant Morrison's well, run, which is nice. Delano took over. Delano did take over. I've yeah. never had an interest in that era. I've read a bit of it and got bored. It seems to me like it got too far into vertigo. Too preachy. Yeah. Too vertigo -y. So I think that's why even now they've stuck with... Morrison. The Morrison stuff. They've stuck with the stuff that's in print. Yeah. You go and pick up Animal Man, this is the stuff that's out there, You've just isn't started it? doing Delano's, I think. Have they? Yeah. All right, fair enough. Your mum tried reading some of Jamie Delano's stuff, hated it. Right. Well, she doesn't like his uh, Hellblazer either, does Nope, she? she didn't like his Hellblazer either, no. She thought he was far too pretentious. Oh. Um, yeah, I love this page. I love Animal Man. Yeah, well, obviously. True. <laughs> Uh, we're only two issues in, and this new Chrono stuff will become important, but at the moment it's really boring. It is. Art changes starting this issue and start to be a little bit irritating mm. in many well, ways. No, it's, it's still Phil Jimenez at this point. Yeah, is it the Incas, though? Well, there's a lot of it. Because there's four Incas on this? Andy Lanner and Norm Ratmund. Uh, Mario uh, Alquiza and, and Larry, Larry Stuka. Yeah, so there's, there's quite a lot of... Uh, there's also a bit of it that seems to me that Jimenez has only just realised how much he's got to do in small yeah, time. Yeah, uh, how much he's uh, let himself in for. Yeah. Why is the Clayface here the Clayface from Batman the Animated Series? Or is that just because all the worlds are colliding? So oh, it's George just, Pal to his bride in. Are they not just going for iconic? Maybe. Images? Possibly, yeah. Uh, the Power Girl sequence is actually really good. I really like the Power Girl sequence. It's nice to see one of the heroes taking no crap, rolling up her sleeves and just getting on with it. Hmm. And I'm really impressed by how her breasts keep changing size. <laughs> if that's a superpower, that would really distract any male people that she's fighting, that's, wouldn't it? That's true. It just keeps stirring at her boobs <laughs> as they get bigger, and then she smashes them in the face, and shrinks them back down to normal size. That's Why have they never done that as a superpower? That's geniusly misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but she's the one doing it, which is inverse misogynism, and inverse sexism, <laughs> and therefore empowerment. Well done. <laughs> Getting your dad out of trouble though, with the female segments of the audience. <laughs> it's nice to see a full-on shirt rip and costume change for Superman as we go through the issue. He does seem to be doing a little bit of a disco dance, though, doesn't he? He does, like that, that <laughs> bit where he's just like, 
<laughs> it's like he rips his shirt off, tosses it behind him, <laughs> like he's doing, like he's being graded on Strictly by Len. It's a ten from Len, so he tosses his shirt behind him, oh, darling. <laughs> and then throws his arms back to show off his chest, and then he takes off, and it is like it's a very choreographed dance move. Apart from that, Darcy what? Bustle gave him a seven. Yeah. <laughs> So apart from that inadvertent humour, it was a pretty good scene, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It just it does look a little bit silly. It does. It's all I, it's all I have to say, to be honest with you. Um, who is this other Lex Luthor? Yeah, yeah. That's an intriguing plot beat, isn't it? Yeah, I, I quite like, um, you know, going for iconic imagery. I like green and purple power suit. You like that he's in the purple power suit? Pink and green yeah. overalls. Yeah, well, that, that's, isn't that the Lex from Jeff Love's Superman Batman run? Yeah. Isn't that who he's supposed to be? Yeah, yeah. yeah as, well, as we go along. I, I quite like this because when you get the reveal, you do get the definitive pink shirted Lex mm. Luthor versus the new Luthor. Versus the new Luthor, mm. as we get uh, later on. So that's, that's quite nice. Uh, Power Girl has had a very convoluted history since the crisis. Johns here makes out that she's from Earth 2 and has been all along, which I'm pretty sure some long time DC fans can pick holes in. If, I, if they chose to. From what I remember, he's not entirely wrong, though. No, I mean, at least he's attempting to explain this. Because isn't there a bit in Crisis on Infinite Earth where she does cross over from Earth 2 to Earth 1, and that's where she stays at the end of it? Yeah. The problem, though, Superboy Prime never met Power Girl in the Crisis. They have sure. a big fight scene where they're in the same battle, Yeah, but they don't actually meet. Superboy's barely in Infinite Earth, isn't it? Not that I can remember until the end, but again, I should have checked. He kind of shows up and then he's at the end of it. Yeah. But because he's left without a, a, a world. So yes. Because this Superboy never grew up to be Superman, did he? Mm. It's the whole point of this story. Yeah. He never did. He never took that next step. Alexander's explanation that Power Girl survived because of her interaction with the Anti-Monitor is also erroneous. Right. Because she, if I'm remember again, if I'm remembering Crisis correctly, and I may not be, as we've just established. Yeah. I don't recall her having much interaction with the Anti-Monitor. Is it not a bit of it where Alexander Luthor here is just bullshitting to create a yes. story that Superman and Lois will believe? That is exactly the thought that I had. Right. Alexander Luthor here is just making this up as he goes along to get Superman to go along, Superman 2, to go along with his plan. Yeah. And a lot of the errors in the story, you can actually say, that was Alex talking crap. Yeah. So, that yeah, that works. Um... And Alex does actually say here, it's one possible explanation. Mm. So he does give himself an out. So is that John saying, I don't know entirely, but it works in the story? Yeah, it's John saying, look, this is the story I want to tell. Yeah, you know, go along with it. Yeah. So, all right, fair enough, we'll go along with it. A nice nod to Wayne Boring in the Superman panel where we see Earth 2 and Earth 1 Superman uh, with his leg up yeah. in that way that Wayne Boring always drew him. And uh, I do love that Superman 2 actually says we should have been Earth 1, because we existed first. Yeah. You get the feeling that's stuck in his craw for some time, <laughs> don't you? So I, I liked that. And there's lots of nice nods to Flash of Two Worlds and the Justice Society meeting the Justice League. and But it's nothing we've never seen before in an event like this. Yeah, 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 pretty much. Uh, although I do find it quite rich of Didio and Co. to diss on 90s DC as being relentlessly dark and joyless. Yeah. Although that was a bit of Mr. Pop meet Mr. Kettle. Yeah, true, but it works in this story to see, look what happened 
let's make it go back to the golden age. Hmm, we were wrong all along. Well, maybe not the golden age, but certainly let's make comics a bit more fun again. That seems to be the point of the story. Yeah, I kind of felt like this was differentiating the modern era from the golden silver age. Yeah. And to show that maybe change is a bit necessary. Unfortunately, they didn't really follow through on it, did they? True, they did not. Skeets has apparently appeared from the 25th century. Booster Gold going back in time, is that in a mirror? Uh, I don't know, I can't remember. I can't remember either. I can't remember him going back in time. Unless it's in one of the ones forward in time to come back in time, yeah. It's all very confusing. It is. This time travel stuff. Uh, The Joker kills the Royal Flush Gang simply because he's miffed that he's been left out of the Justice Society. This is a one-page throwaway gag that only pays off in the last issue of the series. Yeah. I quite liked it because Mm. of that. Yeah. Because then you never see the Joker again until the very end. Yeah. So I I thought that was quite good. Because let's be honest, what's the Joker going to do in this story? Yeah, that's true. He's got no purpose, no reason to be here. The scene where Power Girl gets her memory back is pretty damn good. Even if it's, you know, convoluted memories of stuff that may not ever have happened again, you can infer that maybe Alex Luthor is is doing something here that he shouldn't be, so that's fine. Mm. And the attack on Paradise Island is brilliant. Is really a lot of fun. Well, this is the best bit, really, seeing Phil Jimenez draw Wonder Woman. Yeah. Seeing Phil Jimenez draw George Perez draw Wonder Woman. Yeah. Which is pretty much what he's doing. And it's a, it's a very, very good battle on Paradise Island. I really, really liked it. Uh, all told, I actually think this is a better issue in and of itself than number one. It's more... Now that they've set everything up, it's yeah. a lot more self-contained. Yeah, and it's also... You're getting a decent idea of where the story's going. Mm. And it's not just a boatload of characters standing around and gnashing their teeth. Yeah. There's actual forward progression in issue two. We're setting up who all these people are and what the point of the story is going to be and we've not given away everything yet because mm. we're saving some things in the back, which is good. Um, I do love the pages by Perez heartening back to Crisis and other past events from DC history are great. Johns does a pretty good job of summarising the Crisis for people who weren't there or haven't read it. Granted, he's changed some elements to make this story work. It's not the worst crime that a writer can commit. No. And I'm... I'm I, um Superman 2 and Lois Lane were one of my favourite parts of the story as well. Yeah, Superman 2 and Lois Lane were, were really quite quite nice, weren't they, in many ways. It, it, it's a lot more of a personal story that works well in a mega event. Which, again, is why I think this one works. Yeah. At the heart of it, there is that Lois Lane-Superman 2 connection. Ultimately, it's a love story of Superman trying to live in his heyday. Yeah, and trying to stop his wife from dying. Yeah. But you can't do that. You can't stop people from dying. Even just, Superman can't do that. Just like you can't live in a comics era forever. That's true. Very good point. You know, things move on, don't they? As much as we may not want them to. Issue 3 has a glorious cover by George Perez of the Amazons taking on the Omax. It's as detailed as, as ever. Jim Lee's cover? Uh, Batman in the Batcave with Superman of Earth 2 looking down at him. We have some cute little references in the background yeah Robin in his lovely yellow tights and which I was never a fan of yeah Bruce Wayne and Helena Wayne with Catwoman yeah yeah baby Helena Wayne which is so nice it's, it's cute but it ain't that great no it's, it's Superman hovering in that superior join, join me yeah yeah exactly kind of way we've got Darth Vader and Batman yeah so you know it's, and as usual he's drawing Batman with his ears visible I like that <laughs> I know you do 
There's no accounting for taste. Part three is called Divine Intervention. War rages. In the oceans, Aquaman takes on Black Manta. In San Diego, the Spectre completely destroys Atlantis. On Paradise Island, the Amazons unleash the Purple Death Ray on the Omax. In Gotham, Batman realises the extent of his folly as Brother Eye prepares to exterminate all threats to peace and harmony. Batman tries to view the watchtower log to see who took on Johns, but it will take nearly 30 minutes to download. Better get better Wi-Fi in the Batcave, Batman. Witness to the destruction his paranoia has wrought, the Batman has an emotional breakdown, declaring his wish to just start over. The Superman of Earth 2 tells him he can do just that. In the fortress, Power Girl chats to Lois. Alex Luther says he will do what he can to make her comfortable while Superboy takes a more direct attack, asking Power Girl if she will help bring back Earth 2. He gives Power Girl a letter he hopes will help in her decision. In El Paso, Texas, shards of the exploding Rock of Eternity fall to Earth. As the newly formed Shadow Pack try to locate pieces of the rock and Superman prevents near catastrophe by preventing a building from falling on people, a young man named Jamie Reyes finds a familiar-looking scarab. There's more fighting in New Cronus, and in Keystone City, Wally West, a.k.a. The Flash, joins the fray. On Paradise Island, Wonder Woman tells the Amazons they must retreat. With the Omax making it look like the Amazons are nothing but bloodthirsty warriors, Wonder Woman notes the only end to this battle is for Paradise Island to disappear. The gods agree, and with that, Wonder Woman is alone, prepared to finish what she has begun. Lex Luthor, as indicated last issue, betrays the society as he needs Black Adam for his machine. He would have preferred a Marvel, but Adam will do. He then tracks down the other Luthor, the battle-suited one, and overwhelms him in a mental battle. It is revealed that the leader of the society is in fact Alexander Luthor, who is playing both sides against the middle. A blue-suited figure tears battle-damaged Luthor out of his armour, but he teleports away before he can be killed. In the cave, the Superman of Earth 2 tells Bruce how his life went down on the other Earth, his marriage to Selina Kyle, her daughter Helena, and his ultimate death as a hero. Superman 2 tells Batman that they can be the world's finest team once again on Earth 2. The people on this Earth will be folded into the fabric of Earth 2. In other words, says Batman, they'll die. He asks, is the Dick Grayson of your world a better man? When Superman replies no, Batman unleashes a kryptonite ring on him. However, the kryptonite of this Earth does not affect this Superman, and he burns it off Batman's hand. Superman leaves, saying, it would have been nice. The final scenes play out simultaneously. Power Girl reads the letter, which turns her to tears, and then rage, as she stumbles across the giant tower made out of anti-monitor and fueled by various super beings, including Jaw. Simultaneously, Batman discovers that Superboy Prime attacked John. Power Girl tries to talk to John, and he's knocked out by Superboy Prime. Alex Luthor arrives, noting that Power Girl will help them, willingly or not. Uh, if you haven't read Day of Vengeance, why the Spectre has a mad on rampage goes unexplained mm. but it's not really that relevant to this particular issue is it in many ways True. Uh, there is a change in the dialogue from the trade to from the issue to the trade sorry that, that for, quite frankly is just ridiculous they remove the line of dialogue that this is a purple death ray right because god forbid this should sound too comic booky in a comic <laughs> yeah so, do, 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 what do they change? Don't they just change it to um, the the ray is ready or something? We already have. They change the line to. Right. Uh, I'll find a way to stop this. 
Yeah, they remove the dialogue of the Purple Death Ray has been completed. What's the point of that? Fair enough. Uh, Batman's characterization is interesting throughout this entire issue and is the culmination of the Batman is a dick subplot that has been running through all of the DC line for some considerable time at this point. Now, whether this was part of the grand plan right. from Identity Crisis, simply allowing the writers, or whether it was simply allowing writers to use the past out-of-character dick Batman to make this story work, I don't know. But it works that Batman would have an emotional crisis that all his careful plans that he's laid may ultimately destroy everything. Yeah, uh, I like the bit where he does have a bit of a breakdown as well. Mm, I like that bit. Yeah, because we're suddenly... This is... We're now seeing a more personal Batman, mm. which Morrison would then go on to explore further. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just nice seeing that... Batman is now being broken down by... By his own his, deeds. His own, yeah. Yeah, essentially. And there is a feeling that the, the book is saying something about national security and safety. How mm. far you are willing to go and how much we should monitor a populace in the interests of freedom. Which is what we just saw in Spectre. Um, at what point is this level of security not freedom? Yeah. And I say this knowing full well that London is the most CCTV country in the world. Is it? Yeah. Right. Certainly in Europe, anyway. Maybe not the world. Well, it's the whole... Uh, it, OMAC is called Brother Eye, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Big Brother. Big Brother. Yeah. So, there's the whole George Orwell thing. The Superboy Power Girl scene is actually really well written. In that Power Girl is trying to find a solution that will satisfy all sides. A diplomatic solution to the problem. And she represents the reality of the world today. Yeah. Negotiation and compromise and ambassadors doing diplomatic missions and the greater good not the personal yeah and the greater good whereas Superboy Prime's just not interested he's a Silver Age character everything's black and white as far as he's concerned he's a reflection of the world that used to be and that would make for an interesting read if he wasn't such a horrible character yeah one of the problems that a lot of people do have with this that I was doing some searching for when it came out was how John's mischaracterised Superboy Prime to turn him evil in this story and again this plays into into what we've we've talked about in the in the confines of this story it does actually work it does because work. of the psycho pirates because yeah it was quite interesting to see a pure golden age character be brought down into the modern era but when he's saying the words you made me do this it's all your fault yeah when later on he does come across as being the whiny brat subtext of the internet troll complaining about DC which which is a heavy subtext honestly when I first read this it's not as bad now but when I first read it I just couldn't stand Superboy he he just made me angry reading him did he? yeah he got an emotional reaction from me at the story that's true so so that's fair enough it's interesting I think Superboy Prime here is the powerful faction that has no tolerance for the other viewpoint he's not interested Mm. it's his way or the hard way, and he will flex his muscles to get his own way. Which is a bit... It's more characterised later on in the secret files when you see kind of wise like that. Yeah. And again, he's been manipulated, Mm. but that's still the viewpoint that he's taken. But it's not... He's not being entirely manipulated. That's who he is. It's all there for Alex Luthor to use against him. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And Power Girl is trying to be the more measured, thoughtful diplomat and seek a peaceful resolution that he's just not interested in. So he won't budge. Yeah. I'll be honest, I wasn't expecting this level of depth from this. At least with Superman, you get that what he's doing is for someone else. Yeah, and also as the series gets to its conclusion, Superman realises I'm on the wrong side here. Yeah. Which is a measured and intelligent response. Mm. And it takes a certain level of person to be able to admit that. Yeah. Uh, Superboy Prime's not there. Yeah, well, that's he never got to be Superman. Yes, so he, he didn't ever get to be to be Superman, though, did he? Again, there may be a bit of me reading something into this, given recent news reports being accused of leaving out stuff that is embarrassment to the government. Yeah. Oink oink. But Wally <laughs> and Linda are watching a news report that seems to make out that the Amazons caused this battle, rather than being the ones that are defending themselves. Yeah. So the news is deliberately skewed. And it's a subtle point to note that the OMACs are broadcasting what they want to be seen. Mm. Which again ties into that whole idea of security and national security. And one person having control of the world's media. Yeah. And again, I wasn't expecting this from this story. Yeah, there's even a le- bits that are just throwaway. Yeah, there's a there's a level of there's a subtextual level of depth to this that I just wasn't expecting from a big let's kick everybody's ass crossover. Yeah. So that's another level that this time reading it worked for me that I, I think I just glossed over mm. when I read it the first time because I, I as I was reading this I was having real time conversations with both Michael Bailey and Stephen Stephen Lacer. Right. And in both instances, I was like, holy shit, that just happened! Yeah. And they were both, have you not read this before? I remembered nothing about this. The best thing about this is it's never been more relevant than it is now. Yeah. And considering it was written in, what, 2007? 2006? Yeah. That's quite impressive. This is now nearly ten years old and still subtextually relevant. If more so than when it came out. Arguably. Yeah, in the changes that's happened around the world. So, um, you know, it's good. It's, it's Wonder Woman's solution is quite smart here. Yeah. Take Paradise Island out of the equation. Mm. And then you can't manipulate the news. It also allows for you to create a more Wonder Woman series after this. Yes. So, so that was quite interesting. Um, again, there's another change in the dialogue for the trade. Where Batman asks about Dick Grayson... In the comic, you can misconstrue this as Dick not uh, Bruce not thinking Dick's a good man. Right. Whereas the trade, they clarify what he's asking more. Yeah. So that change makes more sense in your omnibus. Yeah, because I, I do like how Batman sees Dick as the person he couldn't be. Yeah. As the hero. Um, also, a difference is, at least I think it is, the reveal with the tower, the, it's just on one before. Right. Oh, yeah. The characters on it, I believe, are different. Are they? No, no. they're just coloured better, so you can better make out who they are. Maybe it's not this bit, then. Right. Because I know that some of the characters on it were changed. There is something, though, that's worth pointing out. Yeah? In the comic, that's quite clearly R2-D2's head. In the trade, that's been coloured, so it's not as obvious. Right. So I wonder if they got a copyright uh, cease and desist order there. Fair enough. <laughs> Which is quite funny. Um, the ending's magnificently written, the ending to this comic. I simplified it for the synopsis, but in the comic, everything's cross-cut. Yeah. So you get a page of Batman and Superman, then a page of Power Girl, and a page of Wonder Woman and the Amazons, and it's really brilliant. In that comics do 
what comics do best. Yeah, that they can cross-cut all of the action really quickly and really sharply, and you never get confused as to what's going on. I mean, John's is again all from the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths, in which the Anti-Monitor was seemingly destroyed, but it is possible Alex figured something out that we just don't know yet yeah. in terms of, of the story. In every other respect, this was a great issue, a really good read. Best issue yet in terms of starting to knock over all the dominoes. I still don't give a rat's ass about New Kronos. And Johns hasn't given me a reason to yet. Mm. I mean, it will pay out later. And there's still far too elements that have no explanation if you've not been reading the other books. Yeah. But the Superman, Batman, Superboy Prime, Alex, Power Girl stuff's really good. And particularly the Batman Superman confrontation in the in the in the Batcave was really good. It was really very impressive. It's that's when it starts seeding Superman questioning himself. Yeah, it does. So it's it's and really well that it's Dick Grayson. It's Dick Grayson that does it to him. Yeah, because he does he does have a minute though where he goes, "Well, our Dick Grayson's no better or worse than their Dick Grayson." Mm. So am I sacrifice? Am I killing somebody though for myself, my own personal gain? Yeah, that's a nice touch. Mm. Anyway, those four issues. So we are going to knock it on the head for part one, because that was quite long. It was. And we'll be back with another special next week when we cover the rest of Infinite Crisis. The curse of Hey Kids Comics next week. <laughs> next Thursday. Two episodes on a Thursday, just like the old days. Fair enough. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production and a Two True Freaks presentation. Episodes drop intermittently. It's hosted by Andrew and Michael Leyland. All sound clips and music used in the show are for review purposes only, so don't sue us because we talk over them, so it's not like people can rip them off. Correspondence to the show can be sent to heykidscomics at virginmedia.com, which is the email address, and you can Facebook friend me on Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. 